0: Our scripture reading today starts at Acts chapter 20, verse 36, and goes through to Acts chapter 21, verse 16. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come to the inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, When when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied while we were staying for many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Good morning. Um, we continue in our series in Acts. Happy Mother's Day to the mums in the room. We'll uh, say a little more about that later on. <clears throat> um, I want to start by asking you a, a question, a little bit of a quiz, okay? So we're always constantly bombarded by information. So let me see if you can. Um, Guess this, especially like health information, right? Things that you're supposed to eat, not supposed to eat, you know, all this kind of different things. But let me, um, let me ask you a question. What, what is it that, that every single person in this room can be exposed to that would cause in us rising levels of stress hormones, inflammation, uh, the risk of heart disease, arthritis, type 2 di- uh, diabetes, Uh, Early onset dementia, attempted suicide, disrupted sleep, abnormal immune responses, and accelerated cognitive decline. Something that can bring all those things on that every single person in this room can be exposed to. What do you think it would be? Coughing. Newborn babies. <laughs> yeah. Happy Mother's Day, especially to the new moms, of which like half of you are at this point, it seems like. You're like, what day is it? What planet am I on? God help me. Like, so just, you've made it here this morning. That alone is, is probably a miracle. Uh, any other guesses? Stress. And this causes stress. Loneliness and isolation. Boom. That's it right there. Loneliness and isolation, it has been medically proven through all these different studies to cause uh, an increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, type 2 diabetes, especially dementia, uh, a decline of cognitive ability, um, heart attacks, and uh, most professionals that deal with these things are, are, are calling this a growing epidemic, a growing epidemic of loneliness, of loneliness, um, and so we're going to talk a little bit this morning really about, uh, not, not specifically loneliness, but about Christian friendship, um, and Christian friendship really in the context of us being disciples of Jesus and the cost of that. Um, and we're going to see this in our passage this morning. We At Village, we talk a lot about this idea of, of the church not just being an institution, but the church as a family, um, because that's what it is. Um, this is um, one of our stated values. You can find these on our website. If you've been around here at any amount of time, you've heard us talk about this. But this is our stated value as church's family. Too often the church is considered an institution instead of a family. It was never meant to be an event simply attended, but an invitation into a life of divine belonging. In family life, you just don't consume. You give. Families are never perfect, but we believe relational differences provide an opportunity to grow and become more like Christ. We are committed to sharing our lives in Christian community, caring for one another, discipling one another, and resolving conflict. Now, I think a lot of times we use these kind of Christian words and they can kind of soften a little bit of, of, of the meaning behind that. So we use the word like community, right? Um, but community can be such a nebulous word. Like, what do we mean by that exactly? Um, is that the neighborhood that I live in? Is it the city that I'm in? Is it the ethnic group I'm a part of? Is it, what, what do we mean by community? Or fellowship, right? That's a, um, you know, a real churchy kind of word. Like, let's fellowship together. <laughs> we're a fellowship. But let's just actually use a word that we all understand, friendship. Right. What we're talking about is actually friendship. Um, the, the people that we're actually friends with, to varying degrees, obviously, Um, And this is what we've seen, um, particularly over and over again. We've seen this kind of thread, right? Paul and the friends that he is making and bringing into his life um, as they're doing ministry, as they're on mission together, as they're planting churches. Friendship is right there in front of us the whole time. Um, And we see this dramatic kind of um, picture of it this morning because here Paul has to say goodbye to friends. And he's on this journey toward Jerusalem. And all he knows is, he only knows two things. That's where God wants him to go and that trouble's gonna meet him there. Those, those are two things that I, I don't want to, to know together. God's gonna send you there and there's gonna be favor and there's gonna be blessings and a parade welcoming you. Yeah, sign me up for that. God wants you to go there and trouble is waiting. Now, remember, this is Paul. Paul's like, how much more trouble do I have to go through? But we're gonna see he has more coming. And we see in this passage his friends pleading with him not to go because the Holy Spirit has told them the same thing, well, part of the same thing that he told Paul. They all know through the Spirit that trouble awaits Paul when he, if he goes to Jerusalem. So what should we do as Christians when we disagree on certain courses of action? With our brothers and sisters. I mean, if we're sharing life together, if we're dis- sharing, if we're if we're discussing discussing decisions together, we naturally will have times when we have opposing views. So, how do we navigate these things? How do we navigate the costly nature of Christian discipleship together as friends? And so, we pick up the story of Paul saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. Now. If, if, if you've been with us, you might have think, hey, we just skipped a whole section here of chapter 20. We didn't skip it. We just taught that back in the autumn when we installed Andrew as an elder. So if you want to go back and listen to that section that we seem to have skipped, it's on our podcast. It's on the website. You can go back there and, and check it out. Um, but we see here in in Acts this powerful kind of passage. When they had said these things, basically he had, he, he, he had all these kind of final exhortations for these elders. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all of them. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they wouldn't see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when they had parted from them, the NIV I think uses stronger language. It says, and when they had tore themselves away from him, they set sail. Here we have this beautiful picture of Christian friendship. He, he then goes on and we see this happen again with a group of Christians. You see the strength of, of Christian friendship in this passage. Look at just this, just in this passage that we're looking at today, the friends that are men, they mentioned, the Ephesian elders that are there. He spent a, a few years now with these, these uh, leaders planting this church. The disciples have tired their whole family, their wives, everybody's there. These, these are the two beach scenes where they kneel together on the beach. Like, it's not, hey, goodbye, I know you gotta go. This is like dropping him off at the airport, trying to get, like, you used to be able to go through security, you can't do that anymore. Like, at the gate, watching them get on the plane, watching the plane take off. They waited till the very last moment. He's with the brothers and sisters, it says, in Ptolemus. He stays with Philip and his family. Um, and it mentions his four daughters, who are prophetesses. The prophet Agabus comes to see him. And then he has this whole traveling companion companions that are on this journey with him. That would have included Luke and Timothy. And it's been pointed out in previous weeks, Paul's surrounded by these Christian friends, these companions, right? They travel with him. When he goes to cities, he stays with them. He visits them. He works alongside of them. They spend time together. They talk. No doubt, they laugh. They weep together. They pray together. Last week, um, Andrew looked at how we can encourage one another by giving, by visiting, by serving, by, by gathering together. This is a context of the friendship that that encouragement takes place in. And the bottom line is, you and I are, are, are like Paul, right? You need Christian friends. Why did Paul need Christian friends? Is this because Paul's weak? Is it because of his personality? No. It's because he like all of us are created in God's image. The triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit when he creates us, it says he created them man and woman in his in his image. The Trinity actually has a conversation before creation we're let in on. Let us create them. Let us. We need friendship because that's how we were created. Jesus actually calls his disciples friends. They weren't just his his students. They weren't just his disciples. They weren't just people he was trying to pass information on to. They were his friends. Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, To need and to want spiritual friendship is not a sign of immaturity, but of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness, but a sign of health. And again, we go back to the creation story, right? Adam prior to sin, prior to the fall. He's in a perfect environment. Daily devotions with the Lord, like personally. And God says all of this is good except for one thing. The one thing that wasn't good is that Adam was alone. He had to name all these animals and all of these animals had a pair; They had something of its kind. And yet, there was, Adam didn't have one of his kind. And so even the fellowship with the Lord he needed someone of his kind. Adam wasn't lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the only ache that's not really a result of the sin, of sin or the fall. And so, if you're here this morning and find yourself lonely, it's it's because you're not a machine. It's because you're human. And so we need to let ourselves need people. And this is a bit of a taboo subject, isn't it? Like the only time you really talk about making friends is when? When you're like, yeah, when you're at school, right? So, okay, come on, little Johnny, it's time to go and now be nice. And this is how you make friends. And you got to, like, uh, if you're a primary school teacher here, you like, you teach them how to make friends and do this and don't do this, right? And so it's okay as a little kid not to have friends because you're still making them and, and all of that sort of thing but what do you do as an adult? It's it's hard to make friends as an adult, isn't it? Like it really is, it's kind of tough. It's not easy, super easy as a kid. Hey, you wanna be my friend? (laughs) Sure, like go to work and try that tomorrow. (laughs) Like go knock on your neighbor's door and give that a go. What are you, nuts, right? We we barely even do that with our friends. Like we text someone or like, you know. You do the old school, like, when you're trying to see a girl, do you like me? Check this box, yes or no? Maybe, you know. But it's hard. It's hard to, and it's this kind of taboo subject, right, to admit that we might actually have times of loneliness. And, and loneliness is not the same as social isolation. Because some people can be a little socially isolated and not feel lonely. Their, their personality they kind of like being alone they you know the time stretches by themselves don't bother them they don't feel lonely and you can be surrounded by people and feel really lonely if those relationships aren't emotionally satisfying or you feel like you're not actually connected and that's the world we live in we live in a world where we're hyper connectivity to loads of people and yet can can really feel isolated and alone And lonely. That's why depression is kind of this weird thing, isn't it? You can be surrounded by people and yet feel like you're by yourself. And so we have to admit and let ourselves actually need people. Self autonomy is really an idol of the West. I'm okay, I can do this on my own, I can bootstrap this. And it becomes this kind of way to protect ourselves. We need other people. I've told this story before, I shared it with my, my missional community this last week. Um, the moment that like the Lord really kind of was like, showed me this in a real way was we were living across the street from um, a, a family. We were just starting out village and uh, their car broke down. And, um, and I said, well, I, do, I don't need my car today. Here's, here's my keys. You know, he needed to go to the big Tesco and all that sort of stuff, right? And, um, and he's like, are you sure? Like, yeah, I'm like, here, borrow my car. Go ahead. Like, use my car. He's like, I'll get our car fixed and sorted. I'm like, no, honestly, go for it. So he borrowed our car. It was great. And I felt really good about myself. (laughs) Helping helping my neighbor. No kidding, like two weeks later, my car broke down. And he's like, hey, why don't you use our car? He's like, I don't need my car today. And I was like, no, no, man. No, 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 no. (laughs) I I couldn't do that. Couldn't do that. And I literally went back in my house. And And like I came in through the door and the Lord was just like, you idiot. Like this is the opportunity that you show what it's like to live as a Christian. Not the other one. It's this one. It's you receiving help. And so I went back over, and I was like, actually, if you don't mind, and I borrowed his car. We need other people. Someone asked us in our our MC, who's your 2 a.m. person? Do you have a 2 a.m. person? The person you could call at 2 a.m. if you needed to? Maybe you've got family, like biological family. Um, You know, they're the kind of people that have to answer the phone, right? But who else outside of that? Do you have a friend that you could call at 2 (laughs) a.m.? And so we see these friendships that are being established. But there's a difference here. These are friendships that are established in a different way. Because Christian friendships aren't established by, hey, you want to be my friend? They're established by the Holy Spirit himself, Right? We say Christian friendship because it's different than the friendship that we have with non-Christians. What binds us together, what the, the way that we can say church is family, that you and I are brothers and sisters if we're both Christians, is that we have been adopted into the same family. Like we literally, spiritually, are brothers and sisters. We are both united to Christ together. We're pursuing the same spiritual goals, hopefully. We're governed by the same scripture and the same worldview, We have a common Savior. That's what unites such a diverse people, people of of different races, socioeconomic backgrounds, of different ages. You can be friends with people that aren't like you. And outside of that, you might not even have an opportunity. And so it's God who creates these bonds. It's our job then to nurture them, to cultivate them, to maintain them. Friendships happen when people share something in common. Right? Hey, you want to be my friend? It's normally because, well, you're playing in the sandbox, and I like playing in the sandbox, so let's, you know, play in the sandbox together. Oh, I see you have a, whatever the toy of the moment is. I like that toy too. Let's be friends. It's something that we have in common. And for us, the thing that we have in common is a common passion for the king and his kingdom. And so we foster these deep friendships among diverse people. And this is what what the early church was known for. It was part of the way that it witnessed to the world the friendships, the relationships that they had weren't like the other relationships and friendships that other people had. They they weren't um, cordoned off into sex by education or by gender, by wealth, by social status of slave or free. All of these people Jew, Greek, all came together and were one, and that got the world's attention. And it still does. It still does. And so, how is this? How, how is the Christian this Christian friendship ex- expressed in this text? Well, one we see firstly uh, fellowship and hospitality. Fellowship. This idea is that is to share. Hospitality means love for strangers or new people. So we've talked about this before. Hospitality isn't just having your mates over. It's, it's, a, it's new people over. This is, um, listen, this is in, in Luke 15, uh, the first couple of verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Tim Keller, this challenging statement from his book, The Prodigal God. He says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today don't have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches. Even our most avant-garde ones, we tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. And that can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our minist- ministries and the, practicing and the and the practices of our churches don't have the same effect on people that, the G- that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same me- message that Jesus did. Part of the way that we express friendship and Christian friendship is hospitality and welcoming in people into that. Paul and his crew stayed with people. They opened up their homes. The churches were meeting in homes that meant new people were coming into their home, not in the safety of some church building. And this is where Paul, his friends, were doing their ministry, right in the middle of all this stuff. And his friends welcomed him in. They didn't have a, my home is my refuge mentality. This is my, my refuge. This is where I escape from the world and I don't let it in. Now, of course, there are times where you, where you need rest and you need all those sorts of things. But they were welcoming people in, offering offering hospitality. And we do this with joy because this is what Jesus does for us. This is the message of the gospel. That Jesus welcomed us, the sinner in. He eats with us. He sets the table. This is why it's one of the requirements uh, to be an elder in a church from, from the Bible. Do they practice hospitality? Do they love and welcome the stranger, the new person? We see Paul, as he goes, staying with people all throughout. I don't think that was just to save money. He wanted to be with people. My guess is living alone for large stretches of our life is probably not ideal. The second way that they they nurtured this was by showing affection, right? We see them weeping, we see them embracing, we see them kissing one another, showing love visibly. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 12. We're going to look at a couple verses from it. So Romans 12. Let me just read this. Let's just start in verse 9. This this section is titled Marks of the True Christian. 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Literally love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. Like hey, if there's gonna be a competition among us, it's gonna be who can honor someone the best. We're gonna, I'm gonna outdo you in honoring. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty or prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, I want us to think there's so much in there that we're going to see Paul and his and his companions practicing. <laughs> right? They're showing affection. They're embracing, they're weeping, they're kissing each other. We're actually commanded, greet one another, Paul tells us here, "Hey, greet one another with a holy kiss." Now that's a holy kiss, right? And how are we to how are we to do that? This isn't weird creepy like uh, affection. Right, this isn't, so like if you're a single guy, don't be like, let's do this, man. Like, holy kiss time. No, he says, treat each other like brothers and sisters. So you can kiss someone like you kiss your sister. <laughs> that should be non-creepy, by the way. <laughs> I don't know where you're from, but where I'm from. <laughs> right? So we shouldn't be afraid of that. It should be right and appropriate, um, you know, Every time I go to France, I'm always caught off guard because I come in the house and they're all like, you know, kissing me and stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot we do this here. Um, But by the end, I'm like, this is just, it's lovely. We're to show affection. I think in our our overly sexualized culture, um, the church can be really, in some ways, rightly so, afraid of um, touch and afraid of intimacy in that way. Right, so we have all these rightly so with like safeguarding children, all those policies, we have all that. The church is, is obviously messed up big time in areas of that. We need to that but that's not what we're talking about. I think we become so fearful of that, or so wanting to stand apart from our overly sexualized culture that we can really not show any kind of physical intimacy with each other in right and appropriate ways. Guys. Right? Hugging a guy or something like that. Oh, well, what does that mean? Or, and this should be the place where, where that stuff can actually happen, where we can have uh, right and appropriate affection toward one another. Um, right and appropriate, godly, holy uh, uh, intimacy with each other. We'll come back to some of that. We see them praying together, right? This is what he says in, in Romans as well. That we're to be fervent in, in prayer. That we're to serve the Lord. We're to be praying with, with each other. They had this instinct to pray. Paul is going through serious trials and serious, serious suffering. And the best fortification in the midst of that is prayer. He's, they're praying with their friends as he leaves, they're wrestling with this as, as, he's, as he's going, I got to go to Jerusalem. And they're going, Paul, we, through the Spirit, don't think you should go. And Paul's going, I, through the Spirit, think I should go. And they wrestle with this in prayer together. We we should be doing that with one another, praying for protection for each other, for blessing, provision, guidance, wisdom, healing. Is that a part of our rhythms together in missional communities and core groups, just ad hoc together? We see them, fourthly, discussing important decisions. Now, if the Apostle Paul had others weighing in on his life decisions, why do you think you're, uh, uh, you know, exempt from that? He's weighing out these decisions, right? We see them do this all throughout Acts. We want to go here, but we, we were praying in it, and the Spirit said no and kept us from going there, and we went here instead. This communal language of prayer as they make these decisions together. God's guidance in your life, the way God will reveal his will, isn't isn't just one silver bullet. We come to the scriptures, right, Uh, firstly and foremost. We seek the spirit and what he's doing. We do that communally together. The Lord uses other people in your life as counsel, right? This is what he tells them in Rome, uh, in, in the book of Romans that we just read, Never be wise in your own sight. Well, this seems wise to me. This seems like the right decision to me. And everyone else is going, hey, this isn't the right decision. Now, interestingly, that's exactly what's happening with Paul. We'll come back to that in a second. But do we have other people speaking into our lives? Or do we just make our decisions on our own? Do we consider the the broader impact, not just that this decision will have on me or my family, but on my community as well. What will this decision? How will this impact my church family? Basic Christianity involves experiencing Christian friendships that are created by Jesus, and they're cultivated um, by the practices like the, that we see lived out here by Paul and his friends, and throughout the Scriptures. This is how he writes. This is how he writes it in Romans fifteen. This is Paul. And this is his advice to us in making friends. Welcome one another. This is, uh, this is us. Not just, this isn't just the outsider. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Our friendships, our Christian friendships actually uh, glorify God. Ray Ortland puts it in question form. Where is the glory of God displayed visibly Today. Answer, in every church where we welcome one another into our reality, our space, and our hearts with, gracious, with the gracious welcome of Christ himself. And so this is why we use this term, church's family. It's not just a, a casual acquaintance. The church is family. Family is easily the most prominent metaphor describing the church in the New Testament. The word brother is used 139 times. Father, 63 times. Inheritance, 19 times. Sons, 17 times. Children, 39 times. In total, there's 277 familial references in Paul's 13 letters. This is Jesus' own words in, in Matthew 12, 46. It says, while Jesus was talking to the crowd, Um, So he's, he's doing some teaching here. His mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So when we talk about church's family, that's not just a, a cute kind of coined phrase. Jesus actually says, who is my brother and my mother and my sister? It's, it's these people here. Now, that's not to diminish the relationship that he had with his biological mother and his family. right? We see him honor his mother over and over again. But he's expanding out our idea of who we think we should have intimate kind of connection with. This idea of family. What do families share? I'll challenge some on this this week even. What do families share? Families share money. They share time. They share space. They share holidays. They share rearing children together. Now that's pretty countercultural, right? I'm not sharing my money with anybody. I'm going on holidays to get away from people. I'm not taking people with me. Are you joking me? I need my own time. I need my own space. Within that. And of course there, of course, there are our uh, uh, boundaries and borders and things like that, right? There's a certain relationship I have with my wife that I won't have with anyone else. Shouldn't. Of course, there are responsibilities that I have to my kids that are different to to your kids, but that doesn't mean that I don't have any responsibility or that you don't have any responsibility. And when we think about this, it's very easy for us oftentimes to just think about us. And that's easy for us if, if maybe you're young or if you're not single. But what does it mean to be single in a church? Do they get to experience family as well? Whether they're choosing to be single or not. Single doesn't always just mean young and not married yet. You can be single later on in life as well, whether you choose to be or not. Can those people experience family? What does it mean for us to, to draw those people in to our lives? What about same-sex attracted people, if we're going to be really frank? Right? Same-sex attracted Christian wants to follow the way of Jesus, then knowing, okay, this is a life of celibacy unless the Lord does something or changes something, which he may or may not. What does it mean to to live a life of celibacy? Or even for a non-same-sex attracted person to feel, actually, you know what? I feel a call to be single in my life, because that is a calling, Just as marriage is a calling. Marriage is a gift and so is singleness. They're both gifts and they're both good. So what does it mean for those kind of people in our church? How do they experience intimacy? We often think of intimacy because of the culture we live in in sensual terms. But it's not. Of course, of course, in sexuality, there is a sense of intimacy, right? One of the most intimate bonds. But there's all kinds of intimacy that isn't sexual. And we have to, we have to think about that. What does Christian friendship mean? What does it mean to, to, to have sacrificial relationships? And that might mean inviting someone along on a holiday. That single person. That same-sex attracted person. I was challenged this week. I um, heard the story of a same-sex attracted pastor in England. Um, and he's obviously, he's choosing to live a celibate life. And uh, he was renting a space and the person was going to sell it. And so he had to move out. Um, and there was an older couple in his church came to him and said, hey, we want to help you buy a place to live. So that you don't have to worry about constantly having to move and you can settle in, in here. And he was like, no, no. And I, I could never do, you know, it's like borrowing the car. I could never do that. I couldn't take your money. And then they asked him this. Would you take money if it were your parents offering it to you? And he was like, <laughs> in a heartbeat, but they're not offering it to me. And they're like, then what's the difference? What's the difference? If you would take it from your parents, we're, we're retired. We're, we're in the same stage of life with your parents. We have uh, capacity and means to do this. Why won't you accept it from us? And in that moment, he's like, I was just really challenged. Because he's like, we've been talking about the church's family. And yet, when it came down to someone actually trying to bring me into their family in a way, my knee-jerk reaction was to be resistant to that. And so our missional communities, they're not just another meeting. They can't just be another thing that, well, I kind of have to go to. Do you see the difference between it's, it's just a thing that I, ha- I go to, it's a Bible study, it's a whatever, or it's a community that I belong to? These are my brothers and sisters, These are my, this is my mother. These are the people that I'm doing life with, along with other people, of course. Missional communities and cores. These aren't just ways for us to to try to tick boxes. These are ways that we're trying to actually practice the way of Jesus together. All the one another's that we're commanded to do in the scripture, bear with one another, confess sin to one another, love one another, How do you practice those on a Sunday morning? It's very, very, very difficult to practice the 47 one another's in this gathering. They they assume that that we are doing life together, right? The only person that you have to bear with on a Sunday morning probably is me up here. You're like, come on already. But this is so key. We welcome each other into each other's lives at this level why because god welcomed us he welcomed us right into the intimate heart of the trinity we welcome god we welcome because god welcomed us this is the story of the gospel and for his glory it's for the gospel and glory that we do this this is the reality of romans 15:7 welcome one another as christ welcomed you And we see all of this is important because of the way that it's, it's actually framed. What's happening here in this passage isn't, isn't just a picnic. Paul's life and his mission is very difficult. Um, he's, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Um, we see earlier in, in chapter 20, the Spirit is compelling him to go and has told him that uh, trials and tribulations await and yet compels him to go. All of his friends through the Spirit as well have been told the trials and tribulations await. And so they assume that he shouldn't go. Imagine him trying to, do, imagine what we've seen of Paul. Right? We've had 21 chapters of, of this story of the church being born out. Imagine the disciples in those early days. Imagine eventually as it becomes Paul now moving out with his, with his cohort. Imagine Paul trying to do this on his own. No traveling companions. No one to stay with in cities. No one to pray for him. No one to bind his wounds. No one to pick him up when he's been stoned and left for dead. Imagine him trying to do this on his own. Impossible. Oh, with God, all things are possible. That's true. That's why God gave him a bunch of friends. This is uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than One because they have good return uh, for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie together, they will, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We often think this is in the context of kind of a marriage relationship, right? But it's, it's really just human relationships together. The more alone or isolated you are, the more vulnerable we are. And following Jesus is costly. You need other people alongside of you. You need other people to encourage you. Salvation is free. It costs you nothing. Following Jesus costs you everything. Don't confuse the two. Your salvation didn't cost you anything. We sung the, the words clearly this morning, not by our merit alone, but only by Jesus. It's only by his grace and faith. But once you are saved, following Jesus can cost you everything. And you need people alongside of you. Paul is confident that God is leading him to Jerusalem. Other, confident, other Christians are confident God isn't. And so how do we resolve this? We have Paul's perspective in Acts 20. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I know imprisonment and afflictions await me, and yet the Spirit is constraining me to go. But I do not account my life any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul doesn't care about the danger. He only cares about obeying God's will. And it's God's will that's constraining him to go. Now these other friends of his have a different perspective. Everyone else knew by the spirit, right? We see the text actually tells us that. It's not like they just had a whim. It's not like they just decided not to. Agabus comes and in a very real way takes Paul's belt. He binds his own feet um, and, uh, and hands as this kind of visual aid and says the owner of this belt will be treated the same way. It's gonna be delivered into the hands of the Romans. His other friends encourage him not to go by the spirit. This is the same Agabus that earlier in the book of Acts predicted a famine, and that was true. So this is a guy with credibility. This isn't just some weirdo. This is someone within their, within their um, Christian community. The Spirit told them correctly what was going to happen to Paul. John Stott says that we should make a distinction between prediction and prohibition. The Spirit told them what would happen correctly. The prediction was right. The conclusion that they drew from that, though, was incorrect. The warning was divine, the urging for him not to go was human. This is a good word for us, right? As we discern the Spirit in our own lives, we have to be careful not to draw, the, draw conclusions that the Spirit might not be drawing. The Spirit's words to Paul combined the urging to go and the warning that suffering lay ahead. That was so powerful in that. And we understand their descent, don't we? They loved him. You wouldn't want to see your friend go knowing that suffering lay ahead. Of course you would tell them not to go. He, they loved him. And, and what a valuable asset to the church. Come on, Paul, if you get killed or imprisoned, that's going to stunt the growth of the church and the gospel. This is, uh, can't help, but even as we start to approach Easter, the, the similarities here between Paul's heading to Jerusalem and Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jesus is going to Jerusalem knowing that it would end in his death. And his friends try to stop him the disciples are like, no, don't go, Jesus. And Paul, like Jesus, obeys, and he marches onward to accomplish the will of the Father through suffering. Incredible. May we have the same courage to obey. And what was their, what was their final words? Because they couldn't persuade Paul, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord done. let the will of the Lord be done we're going to trust Paul into the hands of, of God and so a few things here just as we close a few principles that we can kind of apply firstly love people but love Jesus more you want to love your friends well you want to love your Christian friends well love Jesus well love Jesus well (laughs) And you will. You'll automatically love them well. But love Jesus more. This is Matthew 10. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, who is my father? Who is my mother? Right? Not just biological family. And whoever, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Love people. Love our families well. Love our friends well. But love Jesus ultimately. Love Jesus ultimately. It's the priority of our affections and our relationships. And when Jesus isn't at the top, when he isn't have our a priority of our affections, it actually starts to affect the other the other relationships. When we put our other relationships above and before God, we actually love them less well. It is a prioritization of our affections, rightly ordered affections, God first, then our family and friends. That actually helps us to love our family and friends well. Second, value input, but follow God's will. This is really important, right? This is what Paul did. He valued their input. He didn't hush them up. Agabus is like, hey, give me your belt. He's like, "No, nah, man, you know, take off. Like he went through the whole thing. Like he wanted their input. And in the end, he had to go through that with his friends. Now Imagine the, gro- imagine the process. Imagine, see, we have, we have the hindsight of looking back. Imagine these friends pondering through Paul's life. Being able to see maybe the will of God through that. What if Paul didn't go to Jerusalem? It changes the way he ends up in Rome. We, we know Paul wasn't planning on really going to Rome. He was just gonna pass through Rome on his way to Spain. That was his, his, his target was Spain. I'm going to Spain. He wrote to the Romans, I'll stop in on the way and then on my way to Spain. But he wasn't planning on, he wasn't planning on stopping there. And we know he made it to Rome and that's where he ends up being do- killed in the end. And this is all part of God's sovereign plan. We value input, but we follow God's will. Three, there's something worse than dying. And that's not living. Not living is worse than dying. And those aren't the same things. This is Paul's attitude, isn't it? He's like, listen, I I, I gotta go. I I, I can't be constrained by just because there might be danger ahead. This is what he says in verse 24, of the previous chapter. He says, But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What's more important, following Jesus' mission for my life or making sure that I don't run into any kind of danger or trouble? And when Paul weighed those in the balance, it wasn't even close. This, doesn't, this has no value the only value that I have. I don't account of my life any value. It's not precious to me. What was precious and value to him was finishing the course that he would received from Jesus personally. What an experience on the Damascus Road that that must have been. For Paul to make such a change and go, my life doesn't mean anything to me anymore. This is the one thing. This is the singular thing of my life. Meeting Jesus changed everything. And that's four. When you follow Jesus, you aren't alone. And you you won't regret it. Jesus is our friend. He calls us that. He's with us. He promised to be with us to the end of the age. This is what Paul writes to the Philippians For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if, I, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Great. Yet if I, yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I don't know if I want to stay and be fruitful or just it's okay if I'm killed and I go to be with the Lord. I'm hard pressed between the two, he says. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ. for that's far better. His, he, Paul's view of the world was, was, was so different to ours. What we think is important is everything that, that matters to me. It's my health, it's my family, it's my comfort, it's my, it's my, my pleasure, it's my time. It's, it's all of these things. And Paul literally said, all that is like garbage to me. I literally would rather die and leave that all behind just to be with Jesus. And I just don't know that that's always the posture of my heart. I just get so entangled with temporary worldly things that just seem to matter so much to me. I don't know. I think our, <clears throat> our iPhones are discipling us away from Jesus far more than they are toward him. That brings us to the last one here. Following Jesus is costly. But not following Jesus is far more costly. This is uh, Jesus' words in Mark 8. 34 to 37. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, anyone's gonna follow me, okay, we're gonna follow you, Jesus, then let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Man, I think that's what's happening with Paul, is it not? Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You're gonna get in prison there. You could get killed there. And Paul's like, I'm just, I got to deny myself this and I got to take up my cross and follow Jesus because that's where his spirit is constraining me to go. Jesus continues, for whoever would save his life. Isn't that what we try to do? We just try to save our lives all the time. I can just become so me centered and it happens so easily. I'm always trying to save my life. Save it for the way that I want it. I need my perfect kind of life saved the way that I want it. It says, when we try to do that, we actually end up losing our life somehow. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul in the process? What can a man give in return for his soul? Powerful words of Jesus that you are more than the sum of your stuff. You're more than the, the, the sum of your educational degrees and the sum of your bank account and the sum of your accomplishments. That our life, rightly ordered, should be one of following Jesus. And if that means losing some of our life along the way, then so be it. So, following Jesus is costly. But not following him costs way more. You know what makes paying that price a little bit easier? Is having people alongside of you that are paying the same price. Paul is imprisoned. He's beaten. And he's singing hymns. But not alone. Silas is with him. At times. We see... Peter and John, same thing, they get, they get beaten and they leave rejoicing, but they leave rejoicing together. They were there together. Now there are times where you might have to go it alone and if that's what it, if that's what it means, then so be it. Jesus does that. He, he goes it alone even in the end. His own friends kind of abandoned him. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can follow Jesus together. It doesn't mean we'll avoid the suffering. It doesn't mean we, we won't lose part of our life or lose it but doing that alongside of each other to having others who are pushing on, trying to finish our course, trying to finish the ministry that Jesus has given us. Not following Jesus allows us to avoid a lot of suffering now. You can avoid a lot of suffering right now by not following Jesus. But by not following Jesus, we have eternal suffering later and our minds our modern minds just aren't really wired to to think very far down the road we like instant gratification waiting on stuff just isn't our vibe and that's what we're called to do we're called to live now in light of eternity This is um, Psalm 25, 14. These are incredible, incredible words. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. It's the friendship of the Lord. Is he our master? Is he our king? Is he the ruler of, and sustainer of the universe? Yes. And yet he welcomes us into all of that as, as friends. And not only that, as his friends, he reveals to things to us. He makes known to us his covenant and his promises. How incredible is that? This is what sustains Paul. He met Jesus. Jesus revealed this covenant promise to him. and He was never the same. He was never the same. And neither were those that were welcomed into that friendship with him, not just with Paul, but with Jesus. Companions of Jesus being companions together on the mission of God. Not deterred by the dangers that may or may not lay ahead. Just walking in obedience together. Sometimes disagreeing. Paul's like, John, Mark, get him out of here. I'm not going on mission with that guy, right? Fallout, like relational fallout. And yet later, even that relationship is restored. So this isn't perfect. Paul's not this just absolutely perfect guy. He's a human like me and you. And he had so much to see and learn. Their commitment to the gospel, their commitment to Jesus, and their commitment to each other. And how they live their lives as friends in the midst of a costly following of Jesus. May we be encouraged by that. May we see this as as a pattern and as an an example for us. What does that look like for us? Because as of yet, right now, none of us are facing imprisonment. None of us are facing physical beatings. We live in a pretty comfortable life. and uh, my fear is that that makes things harder not easier for us my fear is that when everything is 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 kosher and comfortable and nice that's when the church is in decline that's europe that's the united states and where it's growing and thriving is where there's actually we need each other because there's persecution there's pushback and so we have it hard we have it hard here because we have it so easy. And we have hard work to do with each other to actually push in, to lean in to Jesus, but to do that together. To actually think beyond our normal kind of frame of reference of what friendship and relationship is. How do we draw in people? Loneliness is, is, a, real, is a real thing. But the church should be, a, uh, it should be a hard place to be lonely. But it isn't. It isn't. Very easy to be lonely in a church. Even a big church. Even a growing church. Even a young, thriving, exciting church. Still easy. And so let's look out for each other. Let's take steps. If that's you, let's get, get involved. Make yourself known. Our missional communities aren't perfect at all. But they're a place where we can start. It's a place where we can strive. It's a place where hopefully we can be honest about those things. <laughs> where we can actually meet each other's needs. Where we can welcome each other in, in the same welcome that Christ has welcomed us in. Let me pray.